0: Sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The Ninth Circuit is the last bastion. Well, the Fourth Circuit and the DC Circuit are out to lunch too, but the Ninth Circuit is the one that needs saving the most. Why in the world do we owe anything to Diane Feinstein? She tried to take out Kavanaugh illegitimately. There is no Russian collusion. Uh, I had no collaboration with WikiLeaks. I'm not charged with conspiracy. Believe me, if they could have made that case, they would have. They're trying to criminalize legitimate political inquiry. They're trying to le- le- they're trying to criminalize free speech, which is really what's this about? This is about. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, to reiterate, you support uh, the Medicare for All bill. I believe it will totally eliminate private insurance. So for people out there who like their insurance, well, they don't get to keep it.
1: Well, listen, the idea is that everyone gets access to medical care. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on.
0: And now, Stacey Washington.
1: Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, We have a lot of show to catch up on because we had our guests for two segments last hour, and it was really great to speak to Tommy Schultz, National Communications Director for the American Federation for Children. This is an issue that we can't sleep on it, people, because every year that kids go without an education, it's, education is progressive and it builds on the year before. And so it's like saying to a kid who's been in a failed school district, well, you know what? Let's rescue you. Let's take you out of your failed school district and put you in a good one. Um, it's like taking someone who just graduated from high school and taking them, saying, plopping them into junior level coursework at a... You know, state school or university, and saying, okay, go ahead and do this junior level coursework. How can they keep up with everyone else on the junior grade level, you know, uh, if they haven't had freshman and sophomore year courses? They would be coming in completely unprepared. And we're doing this to our kids. It happens to kids where a kid will be in a school district, especially this happens moving from the deep south to the north. Um, sometimes the kids will be in the school district and then they'll move to another one um, and the other school district is ahead on the curriculum and they have to be put back a year or they have to take a lot of extra classes to kind of catch up. This has also happened to families who've gone from public to private. When they get to private school and they test to get into the school, um, if the school doesn't have an interest exam that you have to pass in order to even get in, if they'll take every kid and your kid tests in and, and they find gaps in the learning, they'll often have your kid have a tutor for the first semester or maybe the whole first year. Or if you get in early enough, you'll be tutored over the summer. And a lot of parents are like, well, you know what? We'll do what we have to do. We'll do the tutoring because we want to get into the school. And, but they're, they're understanding, yes, we're paying out of pocket, but we're also getting the advancement that's coming along with that. It is an issue that we could, we could literally do two full hours about education once a week and still not cover everything. But my recommendation is, and I'm not saying this because I was like, I, I don't have a background in education. Um, I wasn't elected to my kid's school district board of education because I was the traditional candidate, someone who was a retired teacher or someone who, um, you know, had a Ph.D. in something or wrote books or, or is a member of the community that is known for their stellar education. That wasn't me. I just did a lot of volunteering in my kids' school district, and they knew that I knew the district inside and out, and I was a huge advocate for the school district. And more than that, I really had a a kind of lifeline into the different grade levels where my kids were, you know, age-wise. And then in between there, because we were huge boosters and participants in the local kind of municipal sports leagues, and so we would our kids were in all of those, and so, you know, I knew a lot of people in the community. I was plugged in. And my time on school board, I learned a ton, but I also was able to represent constituents and kind of make sure that when the board was hearing from teachers or outside groups or whoever on any issue, that the concerns of parents like myself were being represented there, which is the reason why they have, you know, seven people on a school board. Some, some districts, it's even nine. And so I say all of that to say that any person with any educational background who's interested in being a booster and supporter for their kid's school, whether it's private, parochial, public, charter, um, a homeschool co-op, whatever, all you have to do is just be there, you know, put your, put your time in there and connect with the people. And then amazing things can start to happen because when parents get together and start talking about how my kid's doing really well in this, but they're struggling in that, there can be such an amazing synergy that occurs between parents who they, you care about your kids, you care about the other kids in, in the community, especially, you know, the the mom, you know, I'm a mom, so I'm speaking from that perspective. You know that mom, you're, you're interacting with her, you know the struggles that she's having with her child with whatever the, the subject matter is, and you know that there's gotta be a solution to it. And oftentimes that's how you figure out, well, my kid needs a tutor in this. And so you get your kid a tutor in that, and, and within a year you're like, wow, I can't believe how different things are now. Uh, sometimes it's because your child doesn't, It literally, your child does not have the full slate of information. So there were some gaps in the learning. They were there, they were in class, but they just didn't learn that part. And then the next semester, maybe even the next school year, um, your child is struggling in that subject because they're missing that information. And so uh, targeted tutoring for that information can make a world of difference, literally from C minus work to A minus work for a kid. But often what we do is, and you know, everyone, when I speak about these things, it's often because I'm you know, guilty as charged. Well, often what we'll do is we'll just see it as an insurmountable problem if this just can't be fixed. There's almost nothing in the educational realm with kids that can't be fixed or helped if you get the right person working with you. And it has to be someone who also has that can-do spirit and that attitude that, look, let's tackle this problem. Let's do something. And studies and data show that this is even applicable for kids who they're operating with learning disabilities or they're coming from disadvantaged backgrounds or whatever the situation might be. There's still a solution. There's still a way to work through it, which is why school choice is such an amazing option for so many families because they might be stuck in a building where the educators just say, look, your kid, you know, your kid needs Ritalin or you, they always go to the pills. But in reality, what your kid needs is before school, they need 20 minutes of outside time. And this is especially true for the little boys. They need to have their legs and their arms pumping for 20 minutes before school starts running, swinging, you know, maybe kicking a ball and getting their energy out so they can sit still and actually pay attention during the first part of the morning. And then mid-morning, they get a snack and 10 minutes more of time to just run, you know, do whatever they want to do, have some fun and burn off some steam, and then they can come back and do two more hours. I remember a friend telling me that about her son. She actually homeschooled him. He was in a Christian school, and he was having trouble. Once she started homeschooling him and giving him breaks like that during the day, they transitioned from her being his primary teacher to some retired teachers that she knew and different subjects would come by their house a few times a week and tutor him in the subjects, and he was basically homeschooled that way. And their mornings were always set up the same way. He had runaround time where after he would eat his breakfast, he would get up and he would literally, he'd be doing something active with his body, sometimes for up, a ha- up to a half an hour, and then he would have two and a half hours of instructional time, and then another break, snack, more time running, doing whatever. And that in doing that, he not only caught up and filled in all the gaps from where he was kind of he was struggling, but he kind of went ahead and was able to skip a grade level of school. So the boy was not unintelligent. And when she told me that story, I remember thinking to myself, how many little permanently tanned kids in inner city schools who the kid is always in the office on in-school suspension, the kid is always having notes sent home, and uh, the parents are always in the building trying to figure out why he can't sit still, why he can't pay attention, why he's such a disruption. How many kids, like my friend's son, would benefit from what she was able to do? The only problem is sometimes the parents are both working, so they can't do this homeschool option. And in a public school, if you suggest that you have 20 minutes of recess in the morning and 20 minutes after lunch and, you know, targeted time in the afternoon, teachers are like, well, who's going to who's going to do that? And I'm not, I'm not making this up. In my kids old school district, we actually eliminated morning recess because teachers were rotating to take the duty of morning recess. It was like a rotation. You sign up and you do it every so many weeks. And teachers were saying, well, I'm not being paid for this time. I'm paid to teach, but I'm not getting any extra pay for serving on recess duty. And so instead of increasing their pay to cover it, the district just eliminated morning recess. So some moms got together and they would bring their kids to school and let them run around on the playground to get their energy out before the school day started. One mom told me, she was like, if I don't do this, my son is going to disrupt the whole class because he's got a lot of energy and he needs to get it out. And he used to do that at morning recess. So, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing. If you think about what I just shared there, that is so logical. Boys are more energetic. They do like to just run and tumble and hurdle through space and swing off stuff. They need time to get that out. It doesn't mean they're learning disabled or that they're bad students. It just means they're different and they need different options. Wouldn't it be great if, as a parent, your kid's school eliminates recess and you say, well, you know what? This school over here still has recess. I think I want to move my kid over here because that'd be a better option for me. And for parents whose kids... The school has recess in the morning and that you're showing up and dropping your kid off 30 minutes early and you'd rather have that time at home to eat breakfast and you want to send your kid to a school that doesn't have morning recess, you should be able to do that too. It's amazing how something as small as that can have such a huge impact on a child's learning. But we're so busy arguing about whether the NEA should be able to stop money from going here or there that these kinds of important conversations aren't being had. So, you know, every year when it's School Choice Week, especially when I was still doing writing for the post-dispatch and before that, when I was on school board and, and, you know, just at different times, I've been very involved in it. And I, I just encourage you, if you want to know how it's impacting people during national school choice week, they have all these events. And I posted the link to all of the, you can click the map where you live and find the events in your area. Sometimes the charter schools will have like a round robin open house thing where you can visit all of the charter schools in one day. And they'll have parents there whose kids go there standing around to talk to you about what, what's, what's the impact been for your family, for your kid. All you have to do is go to one of those things. I've, I've been to them before. And you get drawn into these conversations with these parents who are just, they're so excited and they have so much energy. And you're like, what, you know, do you love this school. and They're like, oh, we love it. And the first thing they tell you every single time I talk to these moms, they start off with. Well, my son or my daughter was in school, and you know they were basically failing, and we thought she's going to have to repeat this grade, and we couldn't figure out what was going on, and so we just took a chance and moved her from there to this charter school, and everybody told us that she was not going to make it. It was was going to, you know, the, the this was a horrible idea, and instead now she's, you know, reading above grade level. She's doing this. She's doing that. It's the environment that the kid needs when the parent finds that. It just makes all the difference in the world. So I encourage you, if if your kid is in a public school environment and you love it, more power to you. We had that situation. Our kids love their school district. We loved it. I was a volunteer there. I was on school board. If your kid is in a school district where it's not working out, this is the week for you to explore other options. Maybe something that you could get started in your community or become alongside the legislators who are trying to push it and get it done so that you can have these options for yourself. So you can find that link on the Stacey on the Right Show page. Just scroll down, and it's there. It's for National School Choice Week, and it's a map that you can click on. So we just have a couple minutes left here in this segment. I want to get to Representative Catherine Clark. She's a Democrat. She's describing how cartels blew a hole in an existing steel-slided wall as she's describing how she doesn't really think that medieval options like regular walls are a solution that works that she should be funding it's number six
2: he described that without the right personnel and technology, meaning sensors on this portion of wall, the cartels were able to blow a hole through it that was large enough that they could drive their vehicles unimpeded through it. So when Democrats are looking at border security, we're looking at how do we really address the needs of the border? Right now we have existing fencing, barriers, levees at different points. But what we are going to do is use taxpayer money to fund a political applause line. I think that we're hopeful that bringing together in a bipartisan way this conference committee, we can come up with border security proposals that truly keep our our borders secure.
1: OK, so let, let me just make sure you're understanding. She's saying that because steel slat walls were... Uh, we're vulnerable to explosives that the only thing we should be looking at is drones and additional uh, surveillance techniques, which Border Patrol has said drones alone won't do it. Additional personnel alone won't do it. It just just let's use our logic here. If a group of people are a part of a drug cartel and they're willing to blow a hole in a wall to get drugs into America, they're hardly going to be deterred by a drone or a sensor or three extra Border Patrol agents who at one point, Barack Obama had them armed with uh, beanie bags. They were firing bean bags out of their guns instead of actual bullets. I mean, it's just astounding how silly these Democrats are. We'll be back with more right after this, stay there.
2: Every human
0: life, so irreplaceable I can't imagine life without you, it's just unthinkable
1: created by God with undeniable purpose learn more about beautiful possibility at www.radiance.life follow us on twitter at life has purpose
0: this is viewpoints with kirby anderson yesterday i talked about the book the coddling of the american mind written by jonathan Haidt. he and his co-authors set forth three foundational untruths one of those is the untruth of emotional reasoning Always trust your feelings. You can get yourself in some difficult circumstances quickly if you always trust your emotions. It is easy in this world to get frustrated, discouraged, and even depressed. Psychologists have found that certain patients got themselves caught in a feedback loop in which irrational negative beliefs cause powerful negative feelings, and we're seeing that on college campuses today. In a college classroom, students are apt to make some sweeping generalization or engage in simplistic labeling of the lecture or reading material. In that case, we would hope that a professor would move the discussion by asking questions or even challenging the assertion. Instead, many professors and colleges go along with the student comments. In fact, they may even argue that any perceived slight adds up to what today is called microaggressions. In many cases, slights may be unintentional and actually wholly formed from the listener's interpretation. It is an easy step from not allowing certain topics to be discussed to not allowing speakers on campus who might present a perspective that aggrieved students believe should not be discussed. In the book is a chart illustrating how many speakers have been disinvited from universities. Five years ago, the line jumps up significantly. In previous commentaries, I've documented what has been happening on campuses like Middlebury College, Evergreen College, and the University of California at Berkeley. When emotions and emotional reasoning become the only way to judge ideas and speakers, you end up with the closed campuses of today. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my Point of View. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
1: Well, he's right. You can watch all those live streams, and they're fun. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome frequent guests on the program. We have a little bit of a switch up today because I was telling you that we were having Ted Bromond of the Heritage Foundation And that's fantastic, but he cannot join us today. Instead, we get to speak to a frequent guest who we enjoy his his analysis so much, Uh, Adam Michelle, Policy Analyst in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Adam.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, I was... I was like, I, I got the email from Corinne. I'm like, woo! And then she said she had something. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm gonna live. Because at first I'm like, no, can't we can't we cannot have our guests. So I'm we were going, available. Me too, me too. So we were going to discuss. Um, there's a there's a information out about basically this whole it's it's crazy pants. The EU and how the nations within the EU are really struggling. And they're not finding their union to be as beneficial as they previously hoped it would be. And with Great Britain planning to exit and all of the furor around that, there's actually some opportunities for America to end the pipeline, the Germany's Nord Stream 2 oil pipeline to Russia to you know, get that stopped, and for us to secure a free trade deal with the United Kingdom. Can you talk about like the opportunities that are here for us?
2: Uh, I, I would love to. Uh, but uh, that is more Ted's wheelhouse. I think uh I I focus mostly on budget and uh tax stuff. I've been focusing on wealth taxes and and how the how the proposals across the the country here from the left want to uh, simply soak the rich more with their taxes.
1: Oh my goodness, Elizabeth Warren, that so this is right in the news. She's currently getting a ton of backlash about her proposal to tax anyone who's worth 50 billion dollars or more and to ensure that they can't escape and take their money out of the country by renouncing their citizenship, enacting a mechanism by which the tax would be a part of their renouncement of their citizenship. How does that work out with, I mean, she's worth $8 million herself. She's rich, too. So what is going on there?
2: Yeah, well, tying it back into Europe, this is something that's been tried uh, across the OECD, and it's, it's uh, resoundingly been a failure. They've actually started rolling these taxes back. There's only four countries left that, that, that use them, and they're, they're largely considered to be ineffective and, uh, and adding additional burdens to the tax system without any benefit. Uh, essentially, what, what this tax would do is it would require an entirely new arm of the IRS to, for the first time ever, assess uh, the net worth of of most Americans to see just who has to pay this tax, and then every year you'd have to pay uh, two or three percent of your net worth if you're one of these high income, uh, um, high uh, net worth folks, and that and, and that's much different than an income tax. A, a two or three uh, percent tax on your full stock of wealth is equivalent to something like a 100 percent income tax rate, and so it would have major consequences for our economy. Uh, which would ultimately impact you and I and all the people that aren't uh, super wealthy.
1: So let's let's dig into that a little bit more because I think, as human beings, we do have a tendency to dehumanize people who are very different from ourselves, and the media has been very complicit in dehumanizing anyone who is worth a lot of money, like the Walmart family, for instance. Um, people who started businesses and worked them into something from the ground up, um, the, the guy who started Chick-fil-A, anyone who's worth a lot of money, to ho- the owner of Hobby Lobby. These people are hugely philanthropic and they're very giving. Uh, they just happen to be very wealthy because they've worked really hard for generations to build something. Meanwhile, Hollywood stars who are famous and rich because of how they look or how they sound – Really, it's kind of luck of the draw. It's the genetic lottery, and all of a sudden you're a Hollywood star because you just have a face that's unbelievably attractive. Those people are not seen to be so evil and dastardly. But what Elizabeth Warren is proposing would drive those individuals who have created hundreds of thousands of jobs for Americans right out of this country.
2: That's exactly right, And, and it would prohibit or it would force them to not, never create those jobs in the first place. If you think about the owner of Chick-fil-A, as you just mentioned, if if he's worth uh, four, uh, $49 million and if he earns that one more million dollar uh, and he's now worth $50 million, he all of a sudden has to pay... Two percent of that every year of that total net worth to the federal government. So maybe he chooses not to expand Chick Fil A beyond the couple states where, where he started. Maybe maybe the the Walmart family chooses to never uh, bring WalMarts to every town and lower costs dramatically for American consumers. It, it's all of the those sort of unseen things that get stopped by these uh, by these confiscatory taxes. That that I mean ultimately. It, it, the tax won't be the end of the world for for these rich people, but it will be the it will be the end of the world for you and I who wouldn't have access to all of the innovation that we have access today, the things that lower prices every day and give us higher quality goods, the productivity that allows us to earn higher wages year after year. All of those things come from entrepreneurs and people that have brilliant ideas that are yes profitable. But they're profitable because we all value them so much
1: well i want to I want to point out something you that you're you're talking about lost opportunities and let's face it Adam, talking about opportunity cost is hardly the milieu of Democrats. They don't believe in opportunities they believe in things that come directly from government or directly from bureaucrats who can kind of create opportunities. Even when those opportunities don't materialize, so you, all you have to do is look at inner cities and see that when government controls everything from top to bottom and bottom to top, that there aren't very many opportunities. There's not a lot of thriving going on. There's not a lot of innovation or creativity, but how do we describe what you just shared? Cause I'm, we have to have a way to describe it in two or three sentences that being obsessed with collecting the wealth of rich people is not the most effective way to get to more people having opportunities to access the American dream. It's, it's something about the way we're talking about it that isn't meshing well, and people aren't getting that this is a bad idea. Venezuela is a great example. So are a lot of other countries that have already tried this, but it seems we're, we're reasoning into the wind.
2: You're right. This is a, it is a complicated thing to, to wrap your mind around this idea that it Resources are limited, and it depends on, and you can either deploy resources in a way that wastes them or a way that creates value and makes everyone better off. I think it simply comes down to an an ideological difference. The left thinks that the government can spend your money better than you can. And if you look around at all the examples that you just pointed out across the world, or you think back to Solyndra or uh, the shovel-ready projects under Obama that weren't shovel-ready. All of these things just go to show that, that the government simply isn't as good at spending our money as we are. We are much better investors and stewards of, of, of the money that we earn, and that's no different uh, depending on your what, uh, how much money you earn or how much wealth you have.
1: I think the other thing that it's getting completely brushed under the rug is that they people have done studies because I, I love how whenever I'm wondering, I'm like, I wonder what this group of people does or I wonder what happens when this group of people does. There's someone who's already thought of it and has made a study out of it. And they've looked at a thousand of these kinds of people or 10,000. So we already know that super wealthy people, especially business people, they are very philanthropic. And so the other unintended consequence of taxing them 2% of their wealth is They'll say, well, if I have to give 2% of my wealth to the government, I might as well not build this hospital or this school or this neighborhood. I might as well not fund these charitable organizations that give scholarships to high schoolers, college students, kids, or these you know, neonatal wards. I mean, if, if you look around, we don't realize it, but a lot of what we see that is innovative and really special, there's some really rich person who spent 10 years of their life putting this together and pouring their personal money into it to make something possible for a family like me to access that I don't even know a rich person is behind it until I notice a tiny plaque on the wall. Oh, this whole part of this building was built by, I don't even know who these people are. That this, this happens a lot. I'll see, I'll be somewhere and I'm like, oh, this is so nice. And I'll look, there's a little plaque on the wall. Some rich person put it there and I'm enjoying it. I'm not rich. I'm, I have no plans on being rich and I'm enjoying what they've provided for free for me.
2: And this is, this is the problem with ever-expanding government is it it crowds out that private philanthropy, and what it ultimately does is it, it crowds out the sort of local community that that builds the, your, your local church, your local soup kitchen, or, or, or you raise money for, for, for a new wing of your local hospital. When the government steps in and says, don't worry, I'm going to do this with someone else's money, the, that, that, that drive of community and people coming together and doing things, together for for themselves and for their neighbors and their families, is it, it, it stops happening because sort of mother government is there to do it for you. And so it, it happens both on, on the expenditure side when the government steps in to, to do any number of things. And as you described, it happens on the tax side. When the government takes a larger share of your money, you have less of it that you're going to send to your church or less of it that you're going to send to your local hospital or your uh, your your favorite charity. And that's And and then we look around, and the left says, look, there's not enough charity. The government must do more. But they never ask why or where all that charity went. And it it is often because the government has, has usurped that role.
1: So I know this is something that we've had fun talking about, but it has never, ever come to fruition. And I specifically remember a very nice gentleman who was attacked and maligned by the Democrats, but his slogan was 999. And one of the things that was a huge discussion during Herman Cain's presidential run was the idea of everyone pays 10%. So if you make $10, you pay 10% of that. If you make $10 billion, you pay 10% of that. And everyone pays and no one has any loopholes with which to use to get out of it. So you don't get to claim your property tax or your college education for your kids. You just get to pay 10% of what you've made. Why can't we sell that more? Because in, in my opinion, we would get more revenue and people would be much happier about paying, the, you know, in other words, less evasion, less uh, loophole, uh, you know, extortion and all that, because, you know, I've, I'm paying 10% and so is my neighbor. That guy over there is paying 10%. Everybody in, within my eyeball view is paying 10% of whatever they brought in.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the goal. If we can get to a single, simple, flat tax like that, that's that's the sort of North Star that we should always be driving the tax system towards. But... I mean, right now, when you hear the rhetoric that you hear coming out of the media who parrots most of the talking points to the left, you'll hear mm-hmm. that the rich just, quote-unquote, need to pay their fair share. When you actually look at what the, say, top 10% of Americans are paying, they earn about 45% of the, the income that's earned in the United States, but they pay 70% of the income tax. Yeah this rhetoric is just disconnected from reality. And so it, it really just starts with the fundamental fact that the the wealthy are already paying well more than their fair share, and 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 we need to start with the discussion there.
1: There's also the issue of um, – so when, when you talk about what the wealthy are paying, there's also the issue of their spending. And every family who started off – like my, my husband and I, when we were on active duty in the Air Force, that's when we got married, and we had very little disposable income – we didn't realize that at the time, but looking back, I'm like, wow, we didn't have any money, did we? And he's like, yeah, but we were so happy. We didn't know what we didn't have. So then as we started to make a little bit of money and we had more disposable income, of course, we do the things that families do. We would go on vacation, take the kids to Walt Disney World. And so we spent some of our disposable income on luxury items. Now, we, we never rode the Concord. We have never ridden on a private plane, but it was luxury for us. Well, if you multiply that out for people who are really in that you know, luxury bracket, they spend huge amounts of money driving the luxury market, where this is an entire segment of our economy that's very profitable, that is built up around them spending their money on those things. We're also talking about another unintended consequence of, of taxing them into oblivion, is that they won't fly private planes or have helicopters made and, you know, land on helipads and all this stuff. They won't be doing that because they'll be giving their money to the government. And the government just burns our money. I mean, so it, I just don't understand why anyone can't see this.
2: Yeah, well, this is the talking point of, of Elizabeth Warren, that, that hey, the, what, what is this billionaire? Why does he need that, that expensive yacht that he just purchased? We, I mean, at least we can tax that away from him. And it's a complete uh, disregard for all of the people that designed and built and put together and, and, and work on that yacht. I mean, those are, she's, 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 her proposal is to put uh, millions of, Amer- of Americans out of work simply because she doesn't like the aesthetic of large boats. And it, so it, it really, it's really fundamentally flawed logic. And and at its core, it would be hurting Americans. And the left needs to come to grips with that.
1: Not only that, but it's Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi. Nancy, who owns a vineyard and a huge restaurant in California that is extraordinarily profitable. Nancy Pelosi usually charges her trips to the taxpayers over and over again. She's gone overseas and spent a couple million dollars in total over the past 10 years. Taxpayers flying her around on military planes to these junkets. But she is also worth, I think, my I, I, I'd have to look, but I think I said last week she's worth $60 million or $120 million. It's an out, outlandish amount of money. And she's been in public service for her entire life. I don't begrudge her a penny of it, but she also is a spender in the luxury market. She's someone who, I, I can't understand that she can support this unless just like with Obamacare, where they opted out, she would opt herself out of this tax because this would be very expensive for the Pelosi's, the Warren's, the Schumer's, all of the very rich Democrats would be hit really hard by this.
2: Yeah, I mean, these, these taxes are are, are designed to, to hit that class. And that's, uh, frankly, I'm surprised there hasn't the sort of liberal elite that generally supports haven't started to turn on them when they're talking about new 70 percent tax rates on, on income and, and these wealth taxes. I mean, it would be a, a tremendous additional burden to, to to some of the most productive people in America. And so, you know, the, maybe the silver lining is eventually some of these, these folks will come back to, to the side of, of free markets and opportunity, but that might be uh, wishful thinking on my part.
1: Well, you know, I think it's because they don't think it's going to happen, Um, I'm just glad we have the analysis and really great work, sharp, sharp work that is being done over at the Heritage Foundation and access to the analysts such as yourself to come on and help us work through all of this. Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: All right. Talk to you again soon. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay there.
0: Here's Dan Celia with today's Stewardship Moment. Proverbs 22.4 says, Humility and fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. Our wealth and honor and our eternal life come from our humility and fear of the Lord. Our humility should certainly be a part of our stewardship, knowing that what we have is a gift from God. This humility, I hope, will bring a fear in the knowledge that we are to stay in fear and reverence of the Lord. Are we humble in our stewardship for Jesus Christ? You've just heard a stewardship moment with Dan Celia of Financial Issues Ministry, helping you plan, give, and invest wisely. For more information, log on to financialissues.org. That's financialissues.org.
1: This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. A District of Columbia restaurant is $7,000 poorer because a mentally ill man dressed as a woman demanded use of a restroom designated for women. Clyde Clymer was inside the ladies room when an employee asked for identification. The employee then asked Clymer to leave the establishment. He reported the incident to the DC Attorney General's office as a violation of the district's Human Rights Act, but they weren't done. The $7,000 fine is only one aspect of the punishment. The restaurant is now required to post signage telling everyone that they are free to use the restroom of their gender identity or expression. The transgendered man also received an undisclosed settlement amount for his troubles. The employee who asked for ID was terminated. So you see, this isn't about tolerance or love or anything resembling liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. It's about making everyone bow down to the left's ideological hobby horse. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at stacyontheright.com.
3: I'm Chad Pergrim with the Speaker's Lobby. The linchpin to avoiding another government shutdown in mid-February is a House-Senate conference committee on border security. Either the sides work out a deal or there is a serious risk of a government shutdown again in a few weeks. A conference committee is a bipartisan, bicameral group of lawmakers appointed by leadership because of their expertise or areas of jurisdiction on a given issue based on committee assignments. Here's what prompts a conference committee. The House and Senate approve similar but different versions of legislation. In other words, the House has a poodle and the Senate has a Labrador retriever. Both are canines. Put them together, and you get a labradoodle. But it's still a dog. The key is similar, but different bills from the House and Senate. The House can't offer up a Homeland Security Appropriations bill, and then the Senate comes over with legislation about tribal fishing rights from the Committee on Indian Affairs. It would be like the House producing a horse and the Senate coming up with a cow. They don't mix. But if the House and Senate produce a dog breed, then they can go to a conference committee. The final legislation is a conference report, which the House and Senate must both again pass and send to the president... For Signature with the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News.
0: Welcome back to Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The fact that both parties are consistently not doing what's necessary on behalf of the American people. Huh. Oh, goodness. A lot of Democrats are freaking out. Absolute gift to Donald Trump. Growing controversy swirling around the billionaire visionary behind Starbucks, the man who...
1: He could take away votes that would go to the Democratic nominee.
0: Handing President
2: Trump a second term. Many Democrats fear that could be disastrous. Don't help a lot Trump.
1: Scares me. Yes. Is that your entry into this race will guarantee Trump another four years?
0: Number one, are you still a Democrat? And number two, why are you doing
2: this? Even if it means hurting the Democratic candidate and
0: helping to re-elect Trump, and that's that's just a f-ing awful thing to do.
1: Running as a third-party candidate only helps Trump. And maybe Putin. Two words for you,
0: just don't. Doesn't
2: get to be king just because he's so rich. No, I don't think he should run. Votes are so
0: precious, as we saw last time. I really do not think that this is the time for us to to have an independent in this race. It would provide uh, Donald Trump with with his best hope of getting re-elected.
2: He doesn't quite grasp the uh, the, the depth of the impact that that decision would have. Donald he Trump was not all
0: that concerned about the Republican Party. He ran because of hubris. Howard Schultz is suggesting he's going to run, Here's and that the difference. Okay.
2: You do realize
0: that millions of people register as independent, and yet they still tilt one way or the other. I'm not
3: for third-party candidates that could hurt the Democratic ticket.
1: It is not the time. 2024 is your year. 2020 is not. What he's doing right now, I do believe it's very dangerous.
0: We cannot allow this to happen. Are-
3: Billionaires, you need to find new hobbies.
1: Oh, it was so awesome listening to that. Because everybody, like, even the one lady, she's like, this is not yo yeah, blah, 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 blah. There people are really worked up about this because they know that a lot of individuals who aren't political will say, Oh my goodness, the man who created Starbucks, and they'll vote for him. And and especially since he's he's running as Not either party. He's saying openly, look, I don't want socialism. I believe in capitalism. I don't believe in the hardcore right politics. I don't believe in the hardcore left politics. I'm just trying to get something done for America. Doesn't that sound attractive? I mean, if you're frustrated with the Republicans and their lack of action during the two years they had, the two years to get anything done they wanted, and instead of eliminating the filibuster and ramming everything through— which is what the Democrats would have done. They just sat there. They just sat there. Now, the Senate did get through uh, a huge number of the president's judicial picks, and that was great, and they got tax reform done, which was super important, which we need to see more of. But honestly, the guy has a formula that could definitely present a problem. Also, I I disagree strongly that the president's best hope of being reelected is if some independent runs and sucks votes away from the Democrats. I know they own the media, and they're very good at voter fraud, but the Democrats don't have ideas they're running on that work for Americans. And the prosperity that we're experiencing, that is something that Americans like. People like having extra money to spend. People like getting bonuses. People like seeing their retirement accounts grow. They got to run somebody who can actually show that they can do that, too. And they don't have anybody who knows how to do any of that stuff. They're not into growth. They don't know anything about it. Look at Obama's record on the economy. Come on. Abysmal. He couldn't get business cranked up. He couldn't even get moderate Republicans and Democrats together to work on bipartisan legislation. It was basically, well, I won, and that's it, and it's my way or the highway. And everybody was like, well, then the highway. See ya. So he had to use the executive pin and the phone. We see where that's getting him. Everything he enacted is getting erased because it's easy to do when you only use executive orders. So uh, now I want to get over to run down a quick bunch of topics we have here. First of all, you might have heard that the FBI raid on Roger Stone went down with CNN cameras present. So not only did they do, it, it was a knock raid. It wasn't a no knock raid. So basically they knocked and announced themselves, but they had police at the back they had the, uh, you know, so in other words, if he tried to escape out the back, there were already people back there and they were suited up like, you know, on television when they raid a drug dealer or something. But it's Roger Stone, a man who wears those uh, l- little velvet slippers with the embroidery on the on the toe and he's not a big person. He's not known for owning a firearm and he hadn't expressed a lack of cooperation. Now, my personal thought um is that they did this to him because he was uncooperative. And so to show him, to prove a lesson to him, you know, kind of make him learn his lesson for not being cooperative, they raided him instead of just calling his attorney and saying, we want to arraign him in court. Uh, What day would you like to bring him in to surrender? Which is what they normally do with these kind of, you know, he lied to Congress. This is not, that's what they're alleging. I don't know what he did, but they're alleging that he lied to Congress. So the idea that he would be, a flight risk, or that he uh, would somehow resist or might maybe pull a gun or be you know violent, that they needed all of those people to knock it, and in the darkness of the wee hours in the morning, so ludicrous so and remember, this is political opponents going after the enemy quote quote, quote unquote, so that means any person who's the enemy of the current agenda is open to having this kind of thing executed on them that should bother you that should bother you really like that it, it should be upsetting they didn't need to do that so lindsey graham has ordered the fbi to answer questions about the arrest of roger stone <laughs> so i saw this story over on the right scoop and if you don't go to the right scoop like the guy who writes the right scoop is so hilarious Let me just read you this little... This is the intro to the piece he wrote. It's it's a blog post. He said, Lindsey Graham went back to woke Lindsey status today by firing off a letter to FBI Director Ray about what happened with Roger Stone's arrest. Now, this is a bunch of tweets that Lindsey Graham sent out. And he's talking about the letter. So he's tweeting about the letter that he wrote. And he says, My questions include, Why was it necessary to arrest Mr. Stone in his home in the early hours of the wee morning? Um... Why not work through his attorneys to permit him to surrender voluntarily? What, why was the manner or what was the manner of Mr. Stone's arrest consistent with the arrests and of, and procedures for the arrests of similarly charged individuals? I can answer that for you. No, it wasn't. Were usual procedures for obtaining and executing the arrest and search warrants followed with regard to Mr. Stone? No. Did the special counsel's office issue a press release and release the indictment to the press prior to informing Mr. Stone's attorneys of the arrest? Did anyone at the FBI, DOJ, or special counsel's office alert CNN or any other media outlet? Obviously they did. How else would they know? Um, so he's he's demanding that the FBI director answer for the way this was executed. Has to be done. Sorry. Has to be done. It, there's, there's just no getting around it. We need answers. Uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, so... We still have a little bit of time here, and I, I had a, this is an interesting piece. It's just a quick little bit of um, Matthew Continetti of the award-winning Washington Free Beacon. He's talking about Harris's call to eliminate private insurance. He says it's a major slip-up that will haunt her. I'm so glad, but uh, here it is. It's number one.
0: I think Senator Harris had a pretty good rollout. She had that big rally in Oakland. Uh, She had uh, the good fundraising number in her first day. This was a major slip up for her, which will haunt her if she makes it to the general election. And she acknowledged that by having her spokesman saying that Senator Harris isn't backing one Medicare for all plan, but is willing to look at other Medicare for all plans, which would allow people to keep their private insurance. The fact is, Bill, most people are covered in this country and most people who are covered are like it. And that's the obstacle to these socialist schemes.
1: And so there you have it. Um, I think one of the things that we've, we've got to do is talk to people about what that looks like. And there was so much wailing and gnashing of teeth for people who they were just so ready to get on Obamacare. And then they realized Obamacare, It really bites. Obamacare does not give me more options. It's like a hundred times more expensive. And it makes me pay for stuff that I can't actually use. Like men having reproductive services, the, the part like OBGYN services. Since when do men need OBGYN services? Since Obamacare, it was pay for it because women have to use it. And you came out of a woman. So therefore you have to pay for it too. And men all over the country were like, well, I just don't see why I need this. You need it because they told you you need it. So instead of you deciding what kind of insurance plan you would like to have, you just got a one-size-fits-all you know, bag of, of, of hairy crazy cats, and that's what your insurance is, instead of what you had before. There was a tiny number of Americans who didn't have health insurance. Their needs were blown up to be greater than the 170 million households who get employer-based insurance. And we've been just paying through the nose ever since then. Health insurance costs are still rising, double-digit numbers every year. Premiums are up. The cost of prescription drugs, up. Nothing has been solved. So my my question is, why would you trust a Democrat to solve health care? They already, quote-unquote, solved it. And look what you got. So Americans sent Democrats to control the House because they were worried about Republicans taking something from them. The only people who have taken anything from you are the Democrats when they passed Obamacare. And they're going to keep doing stuff like that. If you vote them back in, they'll just make your life worse. Why would you do it? Why would you do it? That's my question. I mean, I understand that baby killing might be something that you dream about at night and it's, it's exciting for you. But aside from the abortion issue and their lust for killing What else have they got? What is so enticing about voting for people who believe the kind of horrible things they believe? Other story from earlier this week, on one of their committees, they were going to eliminate the phrase, so help me God, from swearing into oath, one of the subcommittees. Then the Republicans got wind of it and started yelling about it. And then they were like, well, you know, okay, we won't take it out. Just the same way as they almost took uh, all of the references to God out of their platform Back when it was, uh, I think it was the Democrat National Convention, Barack Obama was running for re-election and they were going to take God out of the party platform. And then a bunch of black Democrats who were delegates were like, you can't do that. And they were praying and they were like, no, don't let this happen. And so they ended up not doing it, but they wanted to, they wanted to take it out. So other news. And I thought, this, this is good news. This is news I, I celebrate. A judge has awarded Rand Paul big, juicy money um, in a settlement against his neighbor who tackled him to the ground. 580,000, half of which was punitive. The rest was for pain and suffering. Remember the neighbor, 59-year-old Rene Boucher. Well, actually, he, that, when it happened, he was 59. He should be 61 by now. It's 2019. He pled guilty in March of 2018. He received a 30-day prison sentence in June and paid a $10,000 fine. And the jury awarded $375,000 to Senator Rand Paul in punitive damages, $200,000 for pain and suffering, and $78,34 for medical expenses. Um, the neighbor's lawyer says they're going to appeal the monetary award for Paul and I hope that when they do appeal it, I hope the next judge doubles it because Rand Paul was asking for over a million dollars because he literally had the broken ribs. He couldn't breathe. It was extraordinarily painful. His wife started sleeping with a gun you know, near the bed, and this was all over little leaf burn piles that uh, Rand Paul used to put in between him and the neighbor's property. So their property lines meet because they live right next door to each other, and Rand Paul would put the little burn pile nearby. So the day before he tackled Senator Rand Paul, Rene Boucher or Boucher, whatever his last name is, he went over to the pile. He felt it was on his property. So he doused it with gasoline and set it on fire. Well, the resulting blaze actually burned him. He burned himself trying to be, you know, a a donkey over there on, on the edge of their two properties. So now he's really ticked off. He's burned himself, singed off his eyebrows. He's, he's upset. So, Then he sees Rand Paul mowing his grass. He was actually not on a push lawnmower. He was on a ride lawnmower mowing his grass. Rand Paul gets off of the lawnmower to pick up a stick. We've we've, we've all been there. Do we not mow our grass and pick up the sticks as we go? He picks the stick up and then is hurtled forward almost 10 feet because he's tackled from behind by Boucher, who lands on top of him and crushes his ribs, breaking five of them. And that's when the fight started. And so I, I, I can't believe the dude spent 30 days in prison for assault. There are people who have gone to jail for a year, two years, even five years for assault. How did this man get such a sweet deal? And so I hope that's what Rand Paul's attorneys point out. He, appeal it. Go ahead and appeal it. The next judge, he should come forward with everything that's happened to him and just say, you know, he, Rand Paul actually said in his testimony when he was recounting what happened, he said, As I lay there on the ground, I couldn't breathe, and I thought, is this it? Last year, the baseball field thing where we were shot at, and here I am in my own yard, am I getting up from here? That's what he thought. That's worth at least a million of that man's dollars. He's worth it. He should come up off of it since he decided to tackle Rand Paul. All right, that's the show for today. I didn't even get to everything. We'll have more for you tomorrow. Have a blessed evening and uh, good evening from the heartland.